You're listening to the Community Pulse Podcast. Welcome your hosts, Mary Thangval, Jason Hand, Sarah Jane Morris, and PJ Haggerty. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Community Pulse. I am one of your hosts, Mary Thangval, and today I am super excited to say that we are talking about the very difficult topic of developer relations and ethics. And I'm super stoked about this because it's been a popular topic over the past few months, uh, past few years probably, but it's definitely starting to pick up steam. Um, Just figuring out how do we talk about our companies in ways that we're comfortable with it? How do we represent companies or projects when there are maybe some ethical issues or issues that we're not super comfortable with? And how do we, as people, how do we, as our own personal brands, represent those companies in ways that we feel comfortable with personally as well as professionally? And we've got two awesome guests here today with us to help address these topics. We've got Coraline Ada Emke and Don Goodman-Wilson with us, as well as our hosts, PJ and SJ. Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hi. Coraline, you want to start off and, and tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're here today? Sure. Um, I have uh, pretty much devoted my professional career and personal life to making open source more welcoming, inclusive, diverse, and ethical. And really, the uh, the ethical component of what we do, as you mentioned, has really come to the fore over the past six months, 12 months. And so I'm very happy to be discussing this topic with you. Um, I got involved in this topic in a serious way last year when I released the Hippocratic License, which is an ethical source license for open source. And I also founded the Ethical Source Working Group. Um, which is uh, a group of about 125 professionals of various backgrounds, all united behind the common goal of bringing ethics to the work that we do and understanding the impact of the work that we do on other human beings. So I'm super excited to talk about this topic with you today. Awesome. We are so excited to have you here. And Don, what about you? You want to give us a little bit of an intro? Sure, sure. Um, I, I, my career has been all over the map, actually. Um, but it's finally seeing some convergence on this topic. I, I actually have a, a background in philosophy uh, and a background in software engineering. I've been involved in open source since probably before open source was actually a thing um, to one degree or another. Um, and lately, uh, I have felt... Uh, that it's very important for me to combine these skills in a way that that's useful. I felt uh, the strong obligation to to start talking about ethics and tech uh, and ethics and open source uh, in particular. Um, but this all really started at uh, DevRelCon Tokyo 2018 when Matthew Ravel pulled me aside and challenged me to write a talk on on ethics and developer relations, which I then gave it at the, the London 2018 gathering. Um, and that was sort of the, the the tipping point for me. That was the first time I'd really started to put these these two things to, together. Um, and I found that it's, it's interesting. It's it's important, um, and people are are really hungry for this sort of uh, this sort of conversation. So it's it's really good to be a part of it. Yeah, I agree that people are definitely hungry for these conversations to happen. I think there's been a lot of side conversations happening, but there's not many people who are interested and or willing to stand in front of a crowd and say, 
here's what I think and here's my opinion and here's why this is important. So again, I'm super excited to have you both here. Thanks for joining us. I think we all are. We definitely are. <laughs> it's my pleasure. <laughs> but now that we have the pleasantries out of the way, um, there, there's a lot of kind of aspects to the ethical um, dilemma, I guess, for lack of a better term, on what goes on in DevRel. And while, you know, I, I don't think it's strictly related to DevRel. I mean, it's kind of something that grows out of the communities we're in. But, but how do we how do we kind of answer the questions about the ethical practices of the places we work? Like, how do we say, um, I work at a place that takes a stance on certain things and says, we will not cross that line. What do you do when you have to change a job or the organization changes and that line changes and it's it's not really any longer in line with what you want to do? Um, is it your job to educate um, the people you're working for? Is it your job to find a new place to work? Like, how do you, how do you go about it? I have some thoughts on this and I really don't think it's any different from the DevRel perspective than it is from the software engineer perspective or the designer perspective or anyone else who's involved in producing technology. We all have that ethical responsibility. We all have the moral obligation to consider the impact of the work that we do. And I know that as a software engineer, when I'm on the job market and I'm looking for a new job, I definitely ask questions during the interview process to figure out where my potential employer lines up, how they line up with the values that I hold most important. And I think it's impossible to find a perfect fit, but you have certain things that you don't, you don't yield on, certain things that you don't compromise on. And I would say that, you know, when you're on the job market, pay attention to that, make sure that your value, your values are more or less aligned. For the question of like what happens when the company changes its position, um, it, that's a really tough question. I think that it's important for people within companies that are towing that line. It's very important for people like that to work from the inside and to raise awareness and to represent the needs of the community. And in a worst case scenario, if the company won't won't adapt, if the company won't address those concerns. I think we have a moral obligation to move on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think the, the mobility issue is, is quite an important one. But but I wanted to add to, to what Coraline was saying. Actually, I think in developer relations, we, we are in a very interesting position uh, and a slightly different position being uh, the external face for the company, right? We, we listen to the developers who use our products and those developers are gonna come to us as they do with their complaints. Um, and when you're working for a company that has crossed certain ethical lines, frequently those complaints will be ethical in nature and they will let you know in no uncertain terms if your company has done something that, that displeases them. Um, and this is good, right? Um, because Oftentimes, if you want to facilitate change inside of a company, uh, it helps to have those sorts of external pressures to be able to bring to bear. Also, we already know, theoretically, ideally, hopefully, how to bring this feedback uh, into, into the company in a productive way, right? To, to inform uh, product development choices, engineering choices, so on and so forth. So I, ideally, we've already got at least something approximating the channels that we need in place to, to bring this, this feedback in. And we can bring it in with the, the force of external complaints, right? That's additional leverage that we have 
for creating positive change inside of the company. Uh, and I think in particular as developer relations people with those channels uh, externally and internally, um, then we have we have doubled the obligation, right? To advocate for positive change from within the company precisely because we're well equipped to do it. I'm curious on, the, on that note, what signals um, do both of you suggest to look at both internally as change is happening within a company and externally when you're in those very early stages of job searching, perhaps before you've started the interview process? Um, what are some of the both public signals that a company can put out and the internal signals um, once you know a change process has take, started to take place within companies that can reassure folks that you know there really is a commitment to um, aligning with your personal set of ethics. Um, just what some of those um, areas of, of public signal might be. I think one of the ways you can get signal, maybe not from the public perspective so much, is by asking the question of a company about a moral or ethical dilemma that they have faced in the past and learning how they've handled it. I think that speaks a lot to how important um, those considerations are for a given company. And it's very likely if you're doing business anywhere in the world, in the US in particular maybe, but uh, you've had those dilemmas, you've had those challenges. And I think it's very instructive to see like how they were handled at the time and what the, what the people involved learned from the process. Maybe mm -hmm. they didn't get it right. Maybe they weren't able to reach a satisfactory conclusion. But what, what's the story um, about the time that it came up or the times that it's come up? I think that can be very revealing. I was going to say, I think, I think that's, a really good, that's a really good point. Um, and to amplify that, um, I think it's important not just to listen to words. There are a lot of companies uh, that, that talk a very good story. I've worked for some companies that have talked a very good story, but did not live a very good story. Um, and I think it's important to, to capture real life scenarios. So as, as Coraline suggested, moral, moral dilemmas or ethical concerns that, that have come up in the past. Um, but I think a more subtle signal that might be interesting too is to what degree is the upper management willing to listen to the feedback of the employees lower down? How, how open to change are they on the basis of that kind of feedback? And I think having that kind of positive feedback loop and hearing good stories about that kind of positive feedback loop, even if they're not related to, to ethical concerns, um, bodes well for the future uh, if things do change, right? Ethical do, concerns do get raised um, and knowing that the management is going to be responsive to demands for, for change um, is, would be very reassuring to me personally. Mm -hmm. And I, I think it's interesting because you bring up the kind of the responsibility of the upper management there. And uh, it's it's interesting to me to see over the past, let's say, 10 years, how many companies actually have responsible C-level folks who are willing to say, like, listen, here's what's going on. You know, even from the like we had an outage level to the we've had a grave communal community or or ethical concern to come out and say, listen, here's here's what's going on. We're addressing the issue or and then seeing the companies that don't. Um, but there's also kind of an external factor as well. And that's, you know, sometimes I've been faced with companies where people have come to say, you know, how can you work for these people? Do you know that they X, Y, Z? And I've never known that they X, Y, Z. I wasn't aware of the X, Y, Z situation. Um, 
And I look into it, it turns out that's actually not true. That's some rumor that got put out. So how do you kind of handle that when you're out in public and you're, someone's kind of challenging you on the ethics of the place where you work and you come to find out at some point that that's actually not true. So there's a community perspective of mm. X, Y, Zing all over the place. In reality, there isn't a whole lot of X, Y, Z going on. I've, I've been in adjacent situations uh, myself in the past. Um, and I think the best way to handle that is to have, is to have a compelling story uh, that you, that you believe, right? Not just one that, that's made up, not one that's handed to you, uh, but one that you've found on your own, one that you've researched on your own, and that has some of your personal conviction behind it. You know, we talk about authenticity and develop relations as being a very important component, uh, when, when we're building relationships with the, with the uh, developers. Um, and, and that's very much true here. If you can have an authentic conversation about the evidence that you have, uh, that may be to the contrary. Uh, that's probably the most powerful tool that you have. Now, in that initial encounter, of course, you don't have that because you're you're learning something new, right? Um, and so, it seems to me that you know it's your responsibility to then go go dig, right, and find out the degree of of truth of that. Because if, you know, if such allegations are true, then that I think creates certain moral obligations. And if they're not true, then you know you have a responsibility to the company to to defend their their reputation against. Um, these sorts of rumors. I'm curious about something not having done um, DevRel myself. Um, PJ, you mentioned um, your reputation as a DevRel person, which I think is beyond the scope of the company you're working for currently. How much of this, this conversation, how much of these concerns have to do with your personal brand as a DevRel professional and your integrity as a DevRel professional, regardless of who you work for? Yeah, that that's a great question. And we've actually had that topic on the show. like, um, And that was actually kind of the episode that you were on earlier, which was episode nine, which was about your personal brand versus your personal lifestyle and what you're doing. Like, how do you divide those two things? Um, for me, and I think this is pretty well known, like I am my personal brand. Like there is, there is nothing that is not true about me on Twitter that you're not going to see about me on real life. Often doing DevRel, you have a personal brand that you need to protect. So jumping away from a company that is toxic or perceived as toxic or unethical um, is sometimes key. And I've, I mean, I, again, this kind of goes back, back to the ability of the, the ability to have mobility, the privilege of mobility. And I can say to a company, especially right now, I'm sorry, I'm not going to work with you anymore. Um, you know, someone came up to me, pointed this out. I realized this is true. I don't want to be a part of that. I will go find another contract from somebody who who is in a better non X Y Z position. Um, not everybody can do that, but yeah, I mean, I've seen people who have kind of been branded because of their association with a company that was unethical, and they have to kind of go dark and lose their personal brand and 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 go away from participating in communities for a while until they kind of you know have a couple of years where they're clear and working for somebody else and. And they can come back and come come do some talks or write some content under their own name again. Um, it's it's a bad situation. So yeah, like the effect on your personal brand is a huge concern for a practitioner. Like it's a huge deal um, oh, when yeah. you're that public facing person. I I cited that in fact in my my resignation letter from from my uh, my last gig. Um, that was one of several reasons, um, but nevertheless, it was it was a prominent reason, which was that. Um, given the ethical concerns I had about the company I was working for, I was genuinely concerned that 
um, that was going to undermine my ability to do my job in future roles. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's a, a very important concern for people practicing DevRel. I'm, I'm sorry, but I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh, no, no, absolutely. I, I would 100% agree with you. I, I would even take it a step further and say that part of the part of the issue is too, that people perceive this as being a startup or a new company issue. And it's not. Um, there are there are companies that have been around for years and years and years in the technology space that have serious, serious ethics issues um, that they're completely willing to brush under the rug while everybody says, oh, look at these Silicon Valley startups. They're, they're all a bunch of idiots. Um, you know, didn't they learn and, and no, uh, like, you know, and that's part, you know, I left one of my previous jobs for the same reason. Like I started to learn things externally that were brought to me and I was like, there's no way that's true. Like why I would never work for a company that did a thing like that. And it turns out they did. And I was like, well, I've got to get the hell out of here as quickly as possible. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, that's not even a personal brand. That's like, a, in some ways, I think this is kind of the crux of, of ethics or ethical dilemmas you can't always know every single thing about a company or the people working there. You can try your best, but you might have a problem finding everything out. And that might hamper your decision as you do your, do your due diligence as it were. And I think that takes us back to the authenticity issue that Don brought up earlier, right? That like a big part of our personal brand and maintaining our personal brand as developer relations professionals is being authentic. And part of that is when someone asks us a technical question that we don't know the answer to, we say, I don't know. And we've talked about that before on the podcast as well, right? And I think it, as simplistic as it sounds, that same concept applies to these types of situations where when someone approaches us and goes, hey, did you know your company is doing this? And if you haven't heard of that situation before, you can genuinely go, I had no idea. Can you tell me a little bit more about it? And the same as we would dig into a technical issue a little bit more, we can say, where did you, where did you stumble across this information? How did you verify it? How did you know? And not in a defensive way, but in a help me understand where you're coming from so that I can then go conduct my own investigation internally and find out what's going on and come back to you with more information and maybe context or maybe, hey, that rumor started because of this, we think, but it's not actually true. And I know that now because of this own, my own research that I've done, like Don and Coraline mentioned earlier. And so I think having that authenticity of not only, you know, I'm representing this company, but there's things that I don't know. And there's things that I'm unaware of. And I think part of it is PJ, you just, you touched on this a little bit, but like, there's no company that's completely perfect, right? There's skeletons in all of our closets. There's skeletons in every company's closets. And so figuring out, you know, which skeletons are there, which ones aren't, but are rumors that might be there because of these things, what actually exists, what doesn't exist anymore. And also what do I have control over? And that takes us back to feedback loops around, you know, well, we're already taking information back about the products. We hopefully already have good relationships with the stakeholders in the company. What power do we have to be able to enact change? And then how long are, are we willing to and or able to, to stick it out to see if we can enact that change? And I think that takes us to a couple different questions that we have uh, today to kind of further the conversation around like, what what lines or boundaries do we need to put up for us to be in, in for us to be comfortable with 
working with particular organizations or publicly representing them, but also then how do we know where to draw a line of like, I'm okay up until this point, but if this line is crossed, I'm no longer okay. And whether or not I have another job lined up, whether or not I can actively leave and still be in a good place financially, here's, here's my boundary so that I know, you know, Hey, if it starts getting anywhere close to that, I need to start looking because like we mentioned, you know, not everybody has that mobility. Not everyone has the privilege of going, you know what, I'm going to quit my job and pull from savings for a few months or, you know, spin up a consultancy like a few of us have done or other things like that, where we go, I'm no longer comfortable with this. Let me move on right now. So how do we prepare for that potential inevitability of A, where are those boundaries? And B, what do we do when those boundaries are crossed? I think think what that calls for is some preemptive introspection. I think a valuable exercise really for everyone is to write down what your values actually are. Um, Let them crystallize, let them take shape, let them take a, a form that you can articulate to yourself and to others clearly. And this is something I recommend to everyone who's starting to look for a job, write down your values, be thoughtful about them. And I think to your point, like write down where your boundaries are. Give it some thought before it becomes a crisis. Because in a crisis moment, you may not really be clear or you may have some conflicting feelings. And it's better if you've taken the chance to evaluate those and and really think about how those manifest in advance. Yeah. All of us are sitting here nodding. I know none of you can see the video, but all of us are like, yes, yes, that, that thing right there. (laughs) I I think especially as um, when you're in the midst of these things at companies, the, you know, the, the waters are not clear. Management is constantly changing their sort of response to things as things evolve. Um, I think there's never, it's rare that there's a very clear cut situation where it's very easy to make the decision. Um, Sometimes there is, and then you react accordingly. Um, But there certainly have been times in my career where there have been ongoing issues that have, you know, A, misinformation in the public that is hard to share the full picture of from a context perspective externally. Um, so it puts you in a rock and a hard place. So I think there's a question of A, when when is the situation very, very clear? And when does it, you know, go against your own set of, of, of ethics? And B, at what point do you, like, as things are murky and those waters aren't clear, how long do you actually want to subject yourself to that that emotionally challenging situation. So even if it seems as though some of the signals from management are positive and they're listening, there's still the emotional labor involved in you know, continuing to represent these companies. And so I think I, I love that idea so much of just having an objective sort of um, you know, code of personal ethics to look back to when, when, when those times get tough. Well, I think that I think one of the key things too is, you know, you know, with Coraline saying, you know, write these things down, crystallize them, like the the kind of brilliance behind that is can lead to the ability to avoid a, cri- a crisis where situational morality takes over, where you say, this I've always thought this was a bad thing, I always thought this was an unethical thing, but you know, it was as bad as I thought, and if if you have that document or however, you know, obviously we're not all writing it down. I'd never be able to read it again. Um, but that 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 text file, whatever you've done to to put it together, and you can go back and say, listen, I said I'd never cross this line. If I'm willing to tiptoe over and back across this line right now, 
I'm willing to step across it in another week or two, and I'm willing to completely ignore it in a month. And I think that's that's the the key to having those those concrete, you know, I will never work for this, I will never stand for this kind of thing. And it, it doesn't mean that they're inflexible, and it doesn't mean that they won't change. Um, I know that you know we we had we had a few topics that we always want to discuss on the show. One of them, like you know, what's it like to do DevRel in the current political climate? Um, and like part of you know we've talked a lot about how there's certain things that I won't say. And I'm we all know I'm an outspoken individual. There's certain things that I won't say because I do these things publicly, and I have children who also go to school publicly, and they have lives that need to you know I need to worry about. Um, so there's certain things that I won't say. There's certain stands that I will take in a more silent way. Um, but there's always been jobs that I definitely won't take. And I think that's you know the big difference when we talk about the your public persona and how you can manage that and the job you take. If if you actively take a job at a place that is clearly unethical, you've you've made a statement that's not it's not likely to go away. Following up on on, uh, on on Mary's question um, and the response that was given, I wanted to add something else, something that I've used as a, as a bright line for myself. Um, and, and it's come up in a couple of different ways in this conversation already, but it's uh, what is the potential for change, right? I mean, all of us, all of us have done things, right? All of our companies have skeletons in their closets, as we've mentioned. Um, but the, the true judge of character is, are you willing to address these things? Are you willing to become a better person or a better company and put in the real effort that it takes to, to get to that point? And if the answer is no, like that's that's a sign to me right there, right? If you're just, if you're just intransigent about it, um, or, or, or you flaunt it like that, or, that's even worse, right? Or even super, get super defensive about it. Or get super defensive we, about we it. We don't know why this thing is a big deal. It's not a big deal. I mean, so, so for me, this is, this is a huge line. And, and the reason is that as, you know, I, I think about a lot of these things as a, a developer advocate, right? So I think about our APIs starting to throw 500 errors, right? Um, of course, we expect a few 500 errors from time to time. But when developers come to me and say, Don, Don, your API is down half the time and it's really terrible. Is this ever going to get better? And if you, if you can't tell them that it is going to get better, right, they're, they're going to go somewhere else. Um, but a good story about how your engineers are really working on it um, and we expect to have the problem resolved soon, like that, that's exactly what they want to hear. They don't want to hear it's going to be instantly perfect. Right. And so it goes with ethical concerns, right? If, if you or, or a developer that you're, you're working with comes to you and says, I have this concern, what are you doing to address it? And if you can, if you can say, well, look, there's, there's a great story here. We're doing this, we're doing that, you know, we're, we're having these, these difficult conversations. Like, okay, okay. That sounds, that sounds good. I'm willing to see where this goes. But if the response is no, it's fine. Exactly how it is. This is how we want it to be. That is not the sign of somebody or an organization making a genuine attempt to think carefully about the ethical and moral consequences of what they're doing. Uh, so for me, that that's a bright line. So you still have to figure out like what your values are, like what kinds of things you won't tolerate. Then I think the time to, to leave is, is then when you see that it's not going to get better. The good news is there's plenty of um, cues for us happening at all kinds of companies to inspire us to think about what those lines in the sand are. Exactly. And I think, I think you bring up another interesting point there, Don. You know, when we have these, these confrontations, 
because um, there's no better term for it when someone comes to you and and I mean you're talking about this feature doesn't work so great, but when someone comes to you and says, "Listen, your company's unethical," um, the way you present it is also determined by like how things are going to get better. If you you know if you get terse and defensive and say, "Well, that's just what we've always, we've always worked with that particular group of people, and we're not going to stop." Um, then you're not really handling the situation. It's 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 almost like when you call customer service at at you know certain cable internet providers and they're just like, yeah, that's not our problem. And they like, if you don't show any care that you're willing to help resolve the problem, you're not really representing your organization or your product or whatever your community in the right way. Um, so like, what's what's the best way when someone comes up you know and says, you're doing X Y Z and that's really shitty. Um, what's the best way to handle what's the, what's the best way to open that conversation? I think for me, it's going to be very context dependent on the nature of the problem. I, th I think the best way is to find a, a public forum and, and have, have a conversation, start the conversation there, which is really fucking scary. I'm, I'm just yes, going to curse for is. emphasis there because <laughs> it's like, it's like, um, uh, you know, eyebrow or, uh, uh, forehead, sweating get the shakes nervous palpitations kind of kind of scary to, to put yourself out there and have these sorts of conversations um you know especially if you're employed in in america or in that will state right where where you're literally putting your job on the line to, to say these sorts of things um even living here in the netherlands where i do where my job is very heavily protected it made me nervous to to participate in these conversations. And I didn't participate in them to the fullest extent that I could have, um, precisely because it's, it's scary as hell. Um, but it has to start with the conversation and it has to start with the conversation that draws in as many stakeholders, which is literally everybody in your company probably, um, as can be. So perhaps there's a Slack channel, right? Perhaps there's, um, um, I don't know what what other people use if it's not Slack. Um, <laughs> Microsoft Teams, oh, representing I'm for sorry. Jason since he's not here. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you recall this thing called IRC? <laughs> yeah, if that's if that's where where you're hanging out, um, or you know, ideally, you know, you want them in a place where you can have a more structured conversation around it, right? You know, perhaps you 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 spool up a, a GitHub repository and start opening issues where you can have individual conversations around you know each of the the different uh, facets of the conversation or potential solutions that you want to put on the table and understand like how do we as a company move forward? And it's it's something that requires the participation of so many people to actually make it work, but everybody's just as scared of that conversation as you are. Um, and so until you start it, like no, nobody else is really, you can't count on them to start it for you um, unless things get really, really bad. And then suddenly everybody can't stop talking about it, um, which I've, I've also seen. But I think part of the key is, is don't, don't do it in public, right? Because when you do it in public, if you, if you immediately escalate to Twitter, um, defenses go up all around, right? And nobody's going to have the kind of conversation that you want to have, which is a constructive conversation that moves, moves things forward, right? It just becomes a, a straight up confrontation. So you need to do it in a space where people feel reasonably safe to say the kinds of things that they want to say. That also means you need the psychological safety of your company to be able to say these things, right? Which may not exist in many cases. Um, and, and in those cases, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to do, right? Because you have to be you have to already be in a position where you're willing to walk away, right? If you think that having this conversation is putting your, your job at risk or putting other people at risk, 
Um, but but you can't do anything without without talking it through. I think that I think that makes sense. And so one one thing I'm I'm kind of curious about. I know we have to get to checkouts, but I have to ask Coraline, who has a history of 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 writing these things down. We're talking about writing these things down. So you know, you gave us the contributors covenant. Uh, you helped with the ethical source dot that. When are you going to give us the ethical mission statement that that companies can just adopt, so that we don't have to do all this work? I don't think such a thing is possible, <laughs> uh, because. I don't think there's wide agreement yet on how responsible companies and organizations need to be. I think that's a question that is evolving, and I'm happy that it's evolving both in public and private channels. Um, I think it's too early for something like that. I'm not going to say it would never be possible, but uh, but really. Um, it's it's so context so contextual and so dependent on where the company is um, and what the company can afford to do and how much they can afford to ignore it or how much they have to address it. And people have different moral and ethical systems, um, which you have to accommodate as well. And I think uh, I think making such a statement. I think a company could certainly make such a statement and it'd be very bold. And I would love to see some companies come forward with statements like that to set the standard. I have an example of one that, that I like to, to use uh, sometimes, which is Zalando, uh, which is a, a, a German B2C clothing company, um, has a very explicit ethics statement um, and they require their vendors, or they don't require their vendors, but they, there's a, there's a strong, obligation on the part of their vendors to also adhere to this this code of ethics perfect we'll share it in the show notes definitely link that up in the show notes um and with that i think this conversation could honestly go on for about six or seven more hours um unfortunately my hard drive does not have that kind of space oh we gotta upgrade your computer pj well (laughs) this company so what are you gonna do the boss is a crazy person um I'm the boss. Uh, but anyway, so it's time that we get to the part of our show that everybody seems to heavily enjoy, where we talk about some things that we've seen or done in the past few weeks that are interesting uh, that we want to share. They can be DevRel or tech related or not. And, you know, either way, I'll get us, I'll get us kicked off if that's cool with everybody. Um, so some of you may be familiar with, there's a UK company called Desk Beers. Um, where what they do is they actually deliver beers to your to your office at about three o'clock on a Friday, so everybody can have a nice beer afterwards. Um, and that's maintained by a friend of mine called Adam Rogers, who uh, was into my Twitter account called PJ's Album of the Day, where I occasionally try to put out an album of the day. It's usually there's definitely one on certain days, just not every day. Um, he took that and expanded it into a project called Personal Record Club which is a site where you can go and say like, here's the album I'm listening to today and share it through Spotify. And people can look and say, okay, that's cool. And, and it's kind of a nice social album sharing program. So it's really cool. Personal record.club. Uh, you do need a Spotify account. He is working on hooking up other ways to do it. Um, we'll see how it goes. Uh, the other thing is I, the other night I was, I was between books and I had picked up this book as one of those. I have an Amazon account and therefore I get like a free book every month. Um, and I picked up this book. It's called A Drop of Midnight. It's by a guy named Jason Timbuktu Diakite. And he is uh, he is a Swedish rapper. Okay, so that's grasp that for a second. And he is African-American. He was born in Sweden to one black parent, one white parent, both from the United States. 
and it's kind of his journey to find his roots. Um, talk about what it's like to be a black person in Sweden. Um, I think we hear a lot of stories about how the, the, the racism and the, the oppression in the United States, but this is a person who didn't even have other really black people to hang out with and have any kind of understanding of that identity or how it worked. So it's an amazing book. It's called A Drop of Midnight. There is an accompanying album that is in Swedish. So if you don't speak Swedish, I wish you the best of luck. Um, and those are my checkups. That's how you can say, I don't speak Swedish. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it's the most important Swedish phrase. It is true. the most important Swedish phrase because it gets you past all of the uh, pollsters at the airport. Yeah, like to hang out. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Duly noted. So that's me. Who's up next? I'll go next. Um, so I've got a tech tool um, that has been super useful for my incredibly distributed team. Um, so for those of you, super short version of the story, for those of you who don't know, I am now director of developer relations at a company called Komunda, which is based primarily in Berlin, but we are moving to a distributed team of employees around the world. So my team is, uh, currently distributed throughout Berlin, London, Australia, and myself in San Francisco. Uh, so time zones are fun and stand-ups are fun and figuring out a time for team meetings every week is interesting. Um, and we are struggling with, you know, how do we keep in touch with each other? How do we know what everyone's up to? How do we stay more connected on projects, especially because a lot of people are focused on a lot of different things. Uh, and so we've been using a, a program called GeekBot lately, and it's an asynchronous stand-up bot for Slack. But I love the, I love that we can customize it because we can go in and I can say, you know, I don't, I don't want, I don't want to know the, what are you doing today? What did you do yesterday? What's your blockers? Kind of a standard thing. I care more about getting to know the team and getting to know their projects better. And so we have, you know, customized questions in there for what's your general plan for today? What are you most excited about? What are, what's something that's coming up next week that, you're interested in all of these types of things, but then you can also do randomized questions. So I have a stack of, I think I have 50 questions in there. Um, that it's everything from what's your favorite color to uh, what's your favorite childhood memory or what's your favorite place that you've ever visited. That's kind of just a way for the team to get to know each other better as well. Um, and everyone gets an alert at I think it's 8 a.m. their time when they sign on to Slack. And so people kind of fill it out throughout the day. And it's been a great way for us to stay in touch better and get to know each other better. And I highly recommend it for anyone else who is working with a distributed team. I love that. That's like such a creative use of GeekBot. You should probably let them know that you're using it that way. I've used it at previous companies and much more of the um, traditional kind of stand-up, just remote stand-up type of yeah, yeah. message. But that, that's that's really fun. Yeah, um, it's been cool. It's been a great way to get to know folks for sure. Yeah, I love it. Uh, I have a couple. Um, I feel like this somewhat related to this conversation. And when I was thinking a little bit about, you know, the emotional state you can get in and sort of navigating these murky waters when you're dealing with, um, you know, ethically challenging issues within companies. Um, these are one of the, this is one of the factors that can lead to burnout. Um, and I believe, and I, I want to find uh, who they were and give them credit, but somebody in the DevRel um, collective Slack shared this semi-recently. 
Um, it's an index. Basically, you answer about, I think it's three or four questions. It's very fast. And it just gives you a pulse on how work is impacting your, your, your mental health and your overall health. Um, and uh, this was something I presented to my team, as well as some talks that Mary has done on this topic, because I know this is near and dear to your heart, Mary. Oh, yes. Um, to my team, who's over enthusiastic and trying to solve all the problems for all of the community all of the time. And I'm like, careful, you're going to burn out. Um, make sure that you take this test, you know, quarterly and make sure that you're staying healthy. And, um, and then to counteract any potential burnout, my favorite tweet of the week. Oh, good God. <laughs> is um, a, a video of an otter playing with an iPhone set to careless whisper. And I feel like that, you know, describing it does not do it justice. Please check out the episode notes and you will be able to behold this beautiful tweet. And if I, I know, I'm not going to try clicking on it now and messing with our sound, but just play careless whisper in your head and imagine an otter and just be delighted by actually watching this video. And I think it's important enough to actually include I agree. And, and I also agree that it's not worthy or it's, uh, our descriptions do not fully capture the magic of this video. I watched it like 60 times this week. <laughs> Don, you want to go next? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go next. This, this cool. sounds awfully dry, um, but I've been doing a lot of research lately, um, especially into the, the history of, of open source software. Uh, and I just finished reading a book by uh, Andrew Russell, who I'm, I'm uh, very lucky to, to count as a, a colleague anyway. Um, friend might be going too far, Andrew, if you're listening. I don't know how to describe our relationship accurately <laughs> publicly, but I like you. Um, well, open standards in the digital age, and it's, it's he's a historian, so this is a, a history, an academic history of um, uh, several different processes and, uh, for, for creating open open standards. Um, and so it's very much about how communities were built either unintentionally and informally, or in some cases very deliberately uh, and very thoughtfully um, to, to bring people together to forge standards in the, the telecommunications and the, the computer industry, um, all of which sort of culminates in, in the, the 1980s um, and, and the what would become eventually the open source movement uh, that stops it stops short of that because he's interested in, in the telecom industry specifically so it's, it's very open source adjacent um there are aspects of this that we have all experienced directly or indirectly uh, especially if you're as old as me and remember when you had to use a bell approved handset on your telephone line i've just dated myself um you know it, it, it talks about a great deal about how communities came together uh, to topple monopolistic power, how communities came together to try to forge um, these standards democratically. And it talks about how communities came together to, to create authoritarian power structures uh, to, to forge um, competing standards um, and the, the way that they interplayed with each other. Anyway, the, the politics are, are really lovely. It's, it's a dry read, but I think it would make a fascinating movie. Like historical fiction, like uh, um, uh, Halt and Catch Fire, right? That was a great show. People should watch. Extra checkout. Watch that show. Um, Coraline, what have you got for us? Um, I have one thing to share that I'm super excited about. There is a brand new conference called Title of Conf, which is a musical tech conference. It's happening in Detroit 
in early May, adjacent to self-conference, which is also one of my favorite conferences to go to every year. And um, yeah, there's this, there's a great lineup of performers, all of us in tech in some form or another, not just software engineers. And um, a great lineup. I'll be performing a couple of songs, um, including The Warrior, which is a snapshot of 24 hours of abuse and harassment online, um, never before heard. And uh, also reprising a track from one of my earlier albums called The Troll, which is about the psychological struggle um, against trolls as you try to make your way through um, the online world. So I'm super excited about this conference. I hope, I hope it's a great success and I hope they keep doing it. Tickets are on sale now and there is a, uh, there's a shared arrangement with self-conf since there's overlapping maintainers. You can get a ticket for both at a discounted rate. And uh, for those of you who don't know, they are looking for sponsors. And if you don't, if you're interested in getting involved in the event, contact me. I will be helping out, and I believe I will also be doing some emceeing duties while I'm there. So I had no idea. That's so yeah, awesome. yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, it's all it's you know it's it's part of the brainchild of Aisha Blake, who's an amazing, amazing person. Yes, she is. And I would love to see everybody out there to support this. It's going to be an amazing time. Um, but yeah, so that's our episode for today. Um, if anybody has questions, please get a hold of us at communitypulse.io. You can find us on Twitter at community underscore pulse. All that information is going to be at the tail end. Uh, thank you, Coraline and Don, so much for being a part of this today. Um, I think it's a really important conversation. Like I said, maybe we can revisit this in a second episode because there's so much more to talk about. Um, thank you to Mary and SJ for helping me out with hosting and keeping me sane when writing the documents to this and not just going off in another direction. Um, we will see you next episode. In the meantime, a little something to think about. Uh, a quote from someone who I wish was a good friend of mine, but wasn't because we just lived at different times. Through every dark night, there's a bright day after that. So no matter how hard it gets, stick your chest out, keep your head up, and handle it. Tupac Shakur, thank you, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to the Community Pulse. Find out more at communitypulse.io, on Twitter at community underscore pulse, or anywhere you get your favorite podcasts.